I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. I'm here with Steve D, as usual and as always. And unlike Arm Holdings, we are interested in the UK stock market. So we've got a show here that is about three quarters full of UK stock investing and market news. But Steve's with me. Steve, it's been an interesting sort of day in the markets. It's the 9th of March at the moment. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing perfectly fine. Uh, I've had a pretty busy week at work. and My finger is almost completely healed, which is amazing. Although I ate about a kilo of steak the day I did it. So I assume the protein in that has got something quite interesting to do with it. But portfolio, Steve, if I had a look this morning, I'd have told you I was doing very, very well indeed. Uh, unfortunately, I've looked again just now and I'm doing very badly. Uh, how about you? How's your week been? How's your portfolio doing? Portfolio? Yeah, that's gone down quite a bit today, or at least quite a bit by the sort of volatility levels that you measure by portfolio in. I looked and it was it was quite red, and some of the stuff I bought recently is kind of quite red. I'm not tremendously worried about that. I'll just look to buy some more. I mean, I know it's what we say, but it kind of is the truth in this situation. Also, mad busy at work. It's the last week of term here, and tomorrow's the last day of term, which basically means that everything that has to be done by the end of term has to be done by tomorrow. After that, I'm looking forward to being told to do other things all day while we get on with this house moving thing, because we've got to be out of where we're staying probably by the end of next week or, or very slightly after that. So lots going on, horrifically busy time at work. Wife and child are still in Scotland for the time being, but that doesn't appear to be conducive to me getting any rest whatsoever. Sounds good. Well, it's fair. Keeping you up because of work is that, and work never keeps me up. I, I'm one of those people who, like, my wife is always amazed that like I can take off my uh, work hoodie the minute I get in, and it seems to be that I just don't seem to remember any of the things past it. And that is a problem for the morning as well. When you've said to somebody, "I oh, will do it first thing," and the best thing to do with that is dwell on it a little bit to help you remember. But in the morning, I get in, I sit down, and go, "Who was I uh, talking to yesterday?" <laughs> mm, that's because you're good at your job and you get things done efficiently. Uh, that's a lie. <laughs> which part both yes uh yes both of those are unfortunately a lie fair enough yeah the stock market's been uh slightly mean to us today but we're looking at buying opportunities and we're actually looking uk sided we've got some stocks that we're uh tentatively interested in and we've got some thoughts on some general sectors and some brokerage stuff nice balance show today moving off the earnings stuff so let's kick things off with i guess we should call it our favorite brokerage in terms of the one that we like to talk about the most i'm sat here wearing a trading 212 t-shirt but we're not really talking about that steve what's been happening or what appeared in both your and my inbox yesterday um yeah so uh, it doesn't appear in my inbox steve no, i suddenly realized it probably yeah. wouldn't because you it doesn't appear anywhere that you can see it yeah, stop talking to me. I have now had all channels of communication with free trade cut off, unfortunately. Um, so just to clarify off the top that I, I you know, ex-moderator at free trade, wrote a lot of the uh, topics that are still getting posted on pretty much every day on free trade. Uh, or, yeah, on free trade. Uh, ex-free trade shareholder. Uh, and we're not sponsored by Trading 212, which is uh, a, a number of the things that have been uh, thrown at me this week because Trading 212... 
free trade sorry have had a price update and uh, i looked at it i thought it was pretty stinky um i wrote a tweet and i wrote um mainly because free trade was pre- providing price comparisons with two of the most expensive brokers on the market and not with the brokers that it actually competes with i just wrote a simple message to uh, on on twitter that said because at free trade won't do the maths for you here it is if you invest a hundred pound in an isa on trading two on two into a us stock you will accrue 0.15p of fx fees uh, sorry 15p of fx fees sorry if you do the same on a per month isa on free trade you will pay 72 pounds and 87 in fees that's getting on for fifty thousand percent more uh run away fast is what i said so steve i am not above criticism and i got some uh some criticism from the free trade fans one of which actually made a twitter account to point out that i was being unfair to them uh, and he said to me that uh, I was sensationalizing the fees and uh, that I should do better. So I took his advice and here's what I've done. So I'll just quickly go over what Free Trade have actually introduced. So they've tried to maybe make their pricing a bit more simpler, but I think they've probably made it a bit more complex. Uh, there's now going to be three tiers of account. So you're going to get a basic account, a standard account, and a plus account. I'm so standard seems like such a terrible name. Basic and standard sound like the same thing to me, but uh, maybe that's part of the part of the uh, appeal. But just to run over the uh, what what these accounts are going to cost you. So basic is a free account essentially. It's a, a general investment account only. It has a not uh, a no pound monthly fee, a zero fee, and has a zero point nine nine percent FX fee. Standard is five ninety nine a month, and this allows you access to a GIA and an ISA, and it has a zero point five nine percent FX fee. And then the big one is Plus. Uh, this is eleven ninety nine a month, and it has a zero point three nine percent FX fee. So, like I say, they had a helpful table showing how these three accounts stack up against their competition, uh, which was undeniably cheaper. But they neglected to include trading two on two, which I don't think they're cheaper than Steve. So I ran some maths on it. So here's a comparison using their tables. I've added in trading two on two. And uh, I've done it both monthly and annually for you just to make sure that uh, I'm being fair. Taking the advice of the man who made a Twitter account to call me out for not being fair. I started with the scenario of investing £100 per month into US stocks, which is what I think most people probably start doing. So on Free Trade's basic tier, that would be 99p a month. On Standard, it would be £6.58 a month. On Plus, it would be £12.38 per month. If you annualise that, it would be £11.88 or £78.96 or £148.56. Uh, so uh, just investing £100 in the month, you know, basically every 16 months, or, uh, sorry, every 15 months on Standard, you may as well give the money to Free Trade instead of investing it in your stocks. And uh, so, uh, 1.5 times in 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 the year uh, on the on the higher tier. So just for comparison, on trading two on two, it would be 15p uh, per month, or one pound eighty. So again, want to be fair? 
So I'm trying it with the higher net worth people who want to put in £500 per month. Let's see if we can get it any closer. So on free trade basic, that would be £4.95. On standard, £8.94. On plus, £13.94. Again, all of these are monthly fees. If we annualise them again for you, it would be £59.40, £107.28 and £167.28. And trading two on two for comparison would be 75 p a month or £9 annually. So lastly, I'm going to try again, Steve, because I wasn't being fair. I'm going to be fair now. And uh, we're going to do 1,650, which is the closest whole number to an equal month ISA deposit that I could be bothered to run. So on Free Trade Basic, you would be charged £16.34. On Standard, £15.73. And on Plus, £18.43. So that's per month again. And I've annualised them again for you. That would be £196.08p, £188.76p, and £221.16p. And trading two on two would be uh, £2.48 uh, or £29.70. So I kindly gave this information on free trade, said it would be, you know, they perhaps should take this into consideration. And the official response was to block me. Um, so, yeah, saw some strange post on the community defending this one steve uh, one trying to say that uh, trading two on two was overly complex and it was full of strange buttons and it made them accidentally short a stock which uh <laughs> i think is a frankly a, a badly told lie um it's not possible to do that you know without knowing what you're doing you've had to open a whole new account to do that which seems unlikely i mean i'm, I'm sure you would realize you were doing that but looking through the community and uh, i can't actually log into the community um but the vast majority of folk here do not seem to like this change and to me this looks like a way to sort of purge investors from the platform with a low net worth uh someone uh who invests 100 quid in an isa and then hasn't put anything in since will have their whole investment eaten by fees within 18 months in the standard account and eight months in the plus account so I remember when, you know, Free Trade was crowdfunding and they said they wanted to democratise investing. And, and I do know that that has been dropped from their marketing, which I'm sure is or isn't linked to these prices. So do you have anything positive to say about these changes, Steve, before we move on? No, I don't. But uh, I knew a couple of things, though. I knew I recognised 1650 as a, a number. It's the ISA divided by the month, basically. I knew there was a reason I kept thinking about that number a lot. Um Look, I'm not positive on um, free trade. My thoughts on this are largely similar to those on a podcast that I was hearing. It wasn't about free trade. It didn't mention free trade by name. It was uh, an episode of Business Breakdowns, which we think is a great podcast if anyone wants to have a listen to, I think, pretty much any of those episodes. They were talking about retail investing, retail uh, trading to an extent, but mostly retail investing in the US. And there's a guy called Andrew Hollingworth, who is the founding partner, I think, at Holland Advisors. I really like um, a couple of his uh, contributions to that podcast. I'll come back to him a little bit later on. <clears throat> but he was talking about a company called Charles Schwab. And Schwab in the US were the first company to take trading fees or investment fees basically to zero. So there was going to be no charge for holding things, no charge for buying and selling. And directly they did that. Uh, pretty much all of their competitors... Stocks got cut in half. Anything that was uh, publicly traded, their own share price went down. Um, they got everything else got cut in half. Stuff like TD Ameritrade, which they went on to acquire after this. And there's an obvious question of kind of how are they doing this? Because they are genuinely 
fee-free? And the answer with Schwab is that they don't make any money on most of these traditional uh, ways of going about doing things. What they make money on is basically by net interest margin. So like a bank, effectively, they have money that sits on their balance sheets. That's deposits that customers have made but haven't invested. And that's pretty much all they make any kind of money on. Point is this. They make money elsewhere and therefore don't charge you for the investing bit. And if they can do that and run a profitable business like that, it's very difficult to see why you're going to go and pay fees to do it somewhere else. Okay, back over to the UK for a moment. And you have companies like, uh, say, Hargreaves Lansdowne uh, for the time being, which runs on a business model of small fees to invest, small fees for holding. Customers generally don't mind very much uh, because it's not big in the grand scheme of things. But the trouble is, once that becomes free from anywhere, because anyone decides, look, we will make money like this and we'll make that bit free, it becomes very hard for anyone to try and charge anything here. And I think that's the issue that free trade effectively has to try and front up to. It has two options. And I think last time we talked about this, I expressed a view like this, but I hadn't thought about it as much as I have now. So... Two options, I guess. One is you persist with trying to keep your fees under your competitors and hope that nobody notices trading 212. Because uh, trading 212 effectively makes its money by share lending and you've signed up for that and your shares get lent out. We've talked about this on previous things. But that means they can keep the uh, basically the dealing side free or very close to free. You pointed out there is an FX charge, uh, a very small one, but uh, so not strictly free. But uh, that's very close to it. They make their money elsewhere, really. Uh, Okay. alternatively, you find a way to make some money some other way. And I think that's where the future looks like for companies like Hargreaves Lansdowne or like Free Trade that want to survive. Basically, I think I'm not convinced that uh, the kind of traditional asset like model of well, I don't know whether Free Trade do this last bit, but you hold deposits for your customers, hold assets clip them for a small amount of their portfolio and basically pay the whole thing out as dividends because you don't really have much in the way of overheads, which is what Hargreaves Lansdowne does. And that's perfectly fine to pay out nearly all of your net income in dividends if that's the kind of situation you find yourself in. I'm worried about that as a viable business model uh, going forward. I've been swerving Hargreaves Lansdowne stock quite uh, determinedly uh, as it gets lower and lower and its dividend yield goes up and up with a view to thinking, I don't see how this persists. Um, it's been the case for a long time that free trade has been very hostile to any mention of Trading 212. Uh, We're not sponsored by them. I sit here in my Trading 212 t-shirt, which they gave me. I don't really know why. I think it was mostly because you did some nice stuff on their community, and I don't think they know who I am. But as I think we established, I'm the one who's best positioned to try and actually wear this t-shirt. That's the main reason I'm in it. Uh, But um, here is, I guess, something to... Uh, sort of keep in mind I suppose with these things when you're thinking about where you want to kind of invest your money think about fees in my case the only thing really up for grabs and it's there for free trade or anybody else to do if they can do it free is my lifetime ISA for next year Uh, at the moment I have that with I'm set to have it with AJ Bell and if there was someone offering a free genuinely free option for that I would let them have it basically so I'm doubtful about this. I stay away from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I stay away from Free Trade. Uh, I found 212 on Free Trade's forum, but very quickly the post that I saw someone advertising it got taken down again. And I don't mind that. That's their forum. They can run it how they see fit, for all I care. But I think in this case, I wouldn't 
buy the stock on free trade, despite the fact that I would see the business model at first sight as quite attractive. It's asset light, it's probably cash generative, doesn't cost much to run. Presumably you could pay a lot of it out in dividends. I can't see how their costs should be so high. It uh, should be that high. I don't know anything about their staffing. But uh, on the face of it, good-looking business. But I would be worried if I was a free trade shareholder or a Hargreaves Lansdowne shareholder. I don't really have the same acts you have with free trade. So I'll talk about all of them. About the existence of another company looking to take fees to zero here. You see, look, mine isn't necessarily that, well, I do, but it isn't necessarily that I have an axe to grind with uh, free trade. It's the fact that they will try and pass themselves off as the cheapest when, you know, anybody can be the cheapest when you compare yourself against things that are more expensive mm. than you, not the ones that are cheaper. That's not a fair comparison. I, I would go as far as saying I wonder if the FCA think they're misleading investors there because, to me, I think that's kind of misleading. Um there's another couple of things as well. That One of the posts that I saw quite a lot coming up on the um, free trade community about this was that the defenders, the detractors, uh, defenders against the detractors, sorry, were saying, but free trade has the best ethics and it has the investors' best interests at heart. And I think, well, they've done very well to market and convince people that that is something worth paying for. But also, on the flip side, this is a company that wanted to introduce both share lending and crypto at some point in the last year neither of which is probably in the investor's best interests. Um, so I remember very early on as a free trade um, shareholder, somebody who was involved in the community quite early on, one of the things they passed out was a compound interest calculator to show you just how bad fees were compounded on your account over a very long period of time. And they did this to show you how bad a mutual fund was taking 1% off you. Uh, you know, how 1% compounded over a 40-year lifetime of your investment is a lot of money. Uh, that compound interest calculator is not available anymore to download from any of their areas, and I have to wonder why. Uh, I do not think this is a very good move. I do not think it's a very good platform. Uh, I certainly will not be looking at them for either my SIP Oh, my ISA. Oh, as if you could. Uh, next year. Uh, I don't know if I could. <laughs> uh, I would imagine I couldn't, but uh, uh, I'm certainly not interested. Would you, is it something you're even thinking about, Steve? It's not. Um, I'm perhaps a bit more optimistic. I kind of, in my head, their story goes a bit like this. I think they set out once wanting to democratise investing. Um, so... We've talked about businesses like, our good example here is Netflix, where you basically want to try and get people in and onto your streaming, in this case, platform. And then the plan is to kind of increase the prices as once they're in and uh, moving is complicated or difficult somehow. I don't think free trade originally set out with that model of let's start out free and then once we've got people on the platform, let's edge the prices up. I mean, that seems to be what's happened, but I think they had a kind of probably had a noble idea in mind of bringing commission-free trading to people or commission-free investing i guess they call it trade but uh, i don't think their platform last time i looked would be really suitable for trading but uh, especially not if you're someone who actual stocks i wouldn't go anywhere near that platform but uh, i think i think probably somewhere along the way that turned out to be quite a difficult business not just because of 212 even if you leave aside 212 it's quite hard to see how you make that business uh, really work it takes a lot of effort to work out where that revenue stream is going to come from and then you hold down your uh, or you hold off the temptation to start trying to take a fee on uh, in the form of a commission basically 
And so I think maybe they just kind of lost their way and found out this was tougher than they realised it was. And it turns out there is a reason uh, that Hargreaves Lansdowne and AJ Bell and various other platforms operate the way they do. It's because it's really hard to make the damn thing free. I mean, one of the takeaways I had from the Schwab podcast that I was listening to is it's a lot of it's taken Schwab a lot of work to turn themselves into that. They have to be regulated like a bank. They have a balance sheet as such. And it's an enormously big and complicated business. And that's a, not an easy undertaking to get to that stage. I'm not entirely sure how it would work in the UK. But the thought is, that's an asset-heavy, effort-intensive, capital-needing uh, model rather than one that looks, at first sight anyway, a lot more attractive. So that's my thought, I think. See, look, here, here's what I think. Um so I think free trade has found out the same thing that you have, that offering free trades and democratising investment. Yeah, so they found that it's very, very expensive. Uh, and with that, they have also found that they are cheaper than interactive investors and Hargreaves Lansdowne, who undoubtedly have much bigger accounts on their, uh, on their platforms. So one of the ways that free trade has discovered that it can make money in a higher interest environment is to take those deposits and just deposit them on behalf of the clients uh, that are held in cash, obviously, uh, into the Bank of England and receive interest on those deposits. That's entirely how TransferWise is making its money at the moment. Doesn't need to be a bank, can get away with it on an e-money license or whatever you need to be. Um, and I would assume that this is a, uh, a maybe thinly veiled, maybe a little bit more than that, attempt at, at attracting people from Hargreaves and from interactive investors to come over to free trade. Uh, and obviously they will get money in two ways. They'll get the, the fees and the FX fees, which are, again, both cheaper than Hargreaves and interactive investors. And they'll be able to deposit the cash on the customer's behalf and make a little bit of money on that as well, which is exactly how, you, you know, even look at Monza. Monza's revenue was up 250% or something like that. And, and almost all of that was a little bit of loans, a little bit of plus, and a lot of, you know, sticking customer deposits in um, uh, in the bank's uh, Bank of England savings account and, and reaping the rewards of that. So uh, I think that's what free trade are trying to do. I don't think it's very well hidden at all, but I think they've got this kind of old personality and this new personality that they're trying to get at. And I think the old, they're reluctant to let go of this free trade, democratising, we're cheaper, when actually what they're trying to say is we're just going to be better than these two because if we steal a lot of business from these two, we'll still do all mm. right. That might be the case. I think a lot of business is going to leave those uh, two, so it's highly possible that free trade can go okay there. Anything else on this, Steve, or should we move ourselves on? Let's we move might on. have done that one to death then. Okay, let's talk about some UK stocks in that case. I've been looking at REITs, because REITs have been surprising me lately. I thought we were basically in a deflationary period, and the idea being that inflation's coming down, but we're pretty much in a recession. What does well in that kind of thing? Hard assets. Uh, effectively stuff like REITs but no REITs have had an absolutely miserable time of things in the UK uh, so sector losses are around 4.4% in terms of their property values and this was in the kind of last quarter to the end of 2022 I haven't uh, seen any more recent data than that yet and some of the worst hits were ones with most exposure to warehouses so industrial REITs those kind of things that we're all bullish on because of the rise of e-commerce and that's effectively where I'm heading with this and I'm wondering whether there's an opportunity here. So here's some numbers of a sort. Um, here's roughly how much they were down in net asset value as far as September of last year was going in terms of that first sort of nine months then. So 
there's a company called Warehouse Reap, which basically owns what it says it does, uh, which is ex- exclusively warehouses. That was down into twelve uh, percent in terms of its net asset value, and thirty-five percent. The stock was down over twelve months. That currently has a dividend yield of around six and a half percent. London Metric Properties, another warehouse heavy but not exclusively warehouse focused REIT, also down 12% in terms of its net asset value, down 31% over the last 12 months. And a company called UK Commercial Property was down 10% in its warehouses and down 34% as a stock over the last 12 months. London Metric Properties has a dividend yield of around 5 and a bit percent. Not sure about UK Commercial Property. Forgot to look it up because I'm not a dividend investor. Whoops. Uh, couldn't find any portfolio data for Segro, which I know Paul owns. Uh, they didn't really say in their report, as far as I could tell, or I had to dig for it, which made life uh, more complicated than I was willing to uh, go to for this. But their stock is down around 40% over the last year. So it's one of the worst performing FTSE 100 stocks of the last 12 months. I think it's bottom... I think it might be bottom three. When I tried to list them, it showed as bottom four, but that's because it didn't recognise Halion as being a year old, so it claimed to have done uh, basically gone to zero, and that doesn't count. Uh, so the previous, there's a couple others. Persimmon's one, uh, and I've forgotten the one one, but I think it's a Cardo actually that's one below it. That's pretty much rock bottom here. So bad times for UK warehouse REITs, but as I was reading Arsenal Investor Chronicle was saying. Look, it could be worse. You could be at a REIT called British Land. British Land is a retail REIT, but they decided to start piling into warehouses and stuff around April last year, and that got them in late in the cycle, and they took a 4% hit as well. And that's down 10% on a REIT that mostly owns retail parks. So it's one thing, I guess, if you're a warehouse REIT or London Metric Properties or something like that, and you've been effectively riding a pretty good bull market in warehouses and then you find, well, look, that we've come off the top a little bit here, and, and down quite significantly from the top, but we were there on the way up as well. Much worse thing if you started jumping in right at the end of a bull market and thought, need warehouses, isn't it? Uh, and bought them all at the top, and then I sat on some big losses in net asset value here. So REITs are down quite heavily, warehouses are down quite heavily, and I wonder whether this is thinking about this all wrong i mean it's not a good thing if the net asset value of these things goes down but are REIT investors really in it for the net asset value i don't think they are i mean it makes it life hard to grow rising interest rates are a problem for REITs they basically have to grow either by borrowing or by issuing equity and rising interest rates is good for neither of those it makes buying more uh, borrowing more expensive and their share prices generally come down which makes issuing equity less effective but I wonder whether this is focusing on all the wrong things. So the trend in terms of leasing space appears to be shaping up pretty well. There's more warehouse space leased in 2022 than there was over any equivalent period in history in the UK. And that leasing seems to be supported by pretty strong online shopping, e-commerce trends. And when I looked at warehouse REIT in particular, their rental income was up about 2%. 2% is not stellar growth by any means, but it's not bad if your stock is down 35%, right? That's a big swing uh, value-wise over the, the course of the year. Interest rates are still going up. Prices are still coming down. I wonder whether there's scope for optimism and scope to be buying here. A uh, friend of the show, Casper, is a big fan of REITs, and he's a big fan of warehouses. I don't think he owns any of these, but I wonder whether I might be able to convince him to have a look at some at least. Steve, have you got any thoughts on this? You like a warehouse. 
I, I do like a warehouse, and I was just looking at warehouse re, uh, now, which is, uh, I, I think I've never looked at it, and I think I've never looked at it, because when somebody says warehouse re, I naturally think of the warehouse re. Yeah, it has you know a mean? stupid name, actually but that being, might not yeah, be enough actually to put you off. one of the most, exactly, it's one of the stupidest names I've ever come <laughs> across in my life, because it's the sector, not the name hmm. of the company. I think they've tried to kind of like muscle in and steal it and uh, and in, uh, failed and in so doing for so uh, I've completely overlooked them so yeah um, that's what I was typing away at while you while you're doing it I was also looking at um, Tritex um, Big Box which is another very popular REIT in the UK that's actually down 40% uh, in the last year as well so uh, that's not going very well um, but it's not to say that these aren't you know potentially very very good um opportunities i just did a comparison with prologis which is the one that i own um that has fallen uh, just in the last one year it's fallen at 19.1 percent but from its high to today it's actually nearly 30 as well so um that's a that's another particularly interesting one but the size difference of prologis to to well both of these uh, UK stocks is crazy. Prologis's market cap is currently 112 billion. Uh, Warehouse is at 433 uh, million, and Tritex at the moment is at 2.57 billion. So, Prologis is a hell of a monster in comparison. I mean, it does a lot. Uh, its metrics are a lot bigger as well, obviously to uh, to to match that. But um, yeah, very interesting, Steve. Not 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 seen either of these. I did see while we're on REITs, um, Alexandria Real Estate just pinged off at 140 for me today, which is not far away from my buy price. So uh, that's one that I could be potentially uh, interested in. Um, you know, well, when I have some money. Uh, either of these jumping out, Steve? Are either of these a uh, purchase? Nothing's jumping out at me yet, and here's why. I think. Clearly, part of the worry uh, with this is over-expansion. I mean, there's not kind of Dutch tulip-style stuff, but there was a point where people, as you saw from British land, felt, we need to own warehouses, we need to find some warehouses, and then we need to go and buy them, or we need to go and build them, or we need to do something, basically, but warehouses. And I'm trying to figure out the oversupply issue here, and if I think there is an oversupply issue, I don't think there is yet. But I am worried about a recession pinching in on some of the smaller businesses and maybe just entirely putting them out of out of operations. Um, so I'm trying to work out what I think the best quality ones of these are. There's lots of them and lots of them own various distribution centres, some like <laughs> London Metric Properties uh, are fairly concentrated near the capital. Warehouse REITs is much more distributed all around the country. Uh, there's lots to think about here in terms of asset quality and exactly what does well and what doesn't i know paul's a fan of segro and he's pointed out several times that they have amazon as a tenant we've said before on this show or i think i've said before on this show in the context of realty income having a big tenant like amazon who is unlikely to not pay their rent has its puts and its takes and i say that about the stock i own as much as the stock that he owns right um high quality tenants you are likely to get rental income from them you are unlikely to be able to negotiate with them very hard when it comes to renewing things. Um, Amazon is, of course, a big owner of uh, warehouses and industrial distribution stuff and so on. So they're unlikely to cut Segro much of a deal when it comes to, or they're unlikely to be the kind of company you can push around into saying, well, it's this or leave. I think they will leave in that sort of situation. So interesting kind of things and i'm trying to figure out some sense of differentiated opera, uh, offering here of what's well located 
what has the best facilities, anything of that sort. That's the big bit I haven't figured out yet. I am convinced there's bargains to be had in this sector. I just haven't yet figured out where, and I imagine Paul will tell me it's Segro, and he may be correct about that, but I haven't yet got myself mm. clear on that idea. I'm just scouting around the mall now and actually seeing um, you know, some of the old favourites are, are down um, quite a lot. I knew it was a sector that was getting uh, beaten up, and it's been generally as a sector quite a quite a long um a long-term winner so it is interesting to see some of these stocks i mean you, you they're not just coming off the highs are they segro 38 percent uh, prologist 20 percent uh the warehouse reap 35 tritax is 40 four corners is the only one i can find that's actually up steve but it's only up one percent uh, over the last year and to be fair that's had ups and downs that's just the look of the draw that i picked today to look i think um but what I know you're not particularly keen on, Steve, is Digital Realty Trust. Is that something you want to add a little bit to? I haven't given Digital Realty Trust that much thought here. I mean, I was quite taken um, with the stuff that Jim Chanos had to say about Digital Realty Trust. It struck me as quite an expensive business to run. They own a bunch of data centers. These things take quite a bit of power. Um, and he had a good look at them and was convinced they don't actually make any money uh, as a result of all of their kind of operations and that they have... I can imagine them being capital intensive. Uh, that point makes a lot mm. of sense to me. And I also worry a little bit about what kind of differentiates their offerings here. Digital Realty, I think, is a kind of briskord favourite, but when I think about REITs and when I think about the ones that I own, I tend to think of ones that are sort of reasonably... Uh, simple and uncomplicated things landlord collect check on we go uh, for the next thing so um, digital realty is one that I haven't really got excited by even if you leave aside thoughts about hyperscalers building their own facilities here which I don't know what to make of that yeah I was just trying to navigate to uh, having a look at uh, DLR's uh, cash flow statement but it's uh, it's not particularly uh, interesting in fact it doesn't make an awful lot of sense at the moment so I'm not even sure if these figures are quite quite correct mm. but yeah you can see uh, it, it is one of those stocks that Chianos doesn't like because he's not a big fan of companies that have really quite hefty capex cycles and this one probably doesn't really have a heavy capex cycle it's almost constant so uh, it would be interesting to see I mean uh, Equinix is and digital realty have both attracted a very premium valuation for a really long time so it would be interesting for them to fall apart on uh, one man's opinion i guess but um they're certainly not doing very well i can see the point where you can almost see the point on the map where chanos uh, started to talk about this i think it was back in was it november or september you can see it's uh, it's uh, it's not looking too hot no. um any of them on your watch list steve which which are your favorite three uh I'm looking at warehouse rate and I'm looking at London metric properties at the moment. I maintain a constant interest in realty income going forward. I'll tell you ones that are not on my watch list from the UK, though, but have been doing undeniably well and comfortably outperforming the rest of the REIT sector. There's two. One called Workspace um, and one called Sirius Real Estate. And if you don't know what these do, they are basically flexible office REITs. So... During the COVID stuff, there was a big hit in line for office real estate with the idea that people will never work from an office again. Uh, and that turned out to not be quite true, but it did turn out to be the case that people work from home more than they did before the 
pandemic and therefore kind of flexible office stuff is quite attractive for a number of businesses who are unsure about what their office requirements are so rather than taking out a five-year lease on a big office block in central london or something uh, you can have some more uh, flexible take or leave uh, local stuff without committing yourself in in that way and those two have done reasonably well over the last uh, however long it's been few years year or so Last I looked, they were up in terms of their uh, kind of asset value, and they were putting up a strong showing. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not convinced by them as uh, as that as a general kind of offering here. If I were thinking about office real estate, I would be looking to buy the best quality stuff I could and basically back the idea that this sector is down so much that it's priced to be entirely losers, which there was a point where I thought it might be. Uh, and I thought, look, stuff like... Uh, there's an outfit called Shaftesbury which owns what to me looks like some very nice real estate in that particular area of London it's where the theatres are I'm not convinced that stuff is going to get turned into working from home Uh, but they also own some offices and some residential stuff and their property portfolio is a little bit kind of complex to figure out but if I was looking for UK office space I'd probably look there So I get really hung up on the UK office space. I always sort of perpetually think they're they're almost too small for me. Uh, they're, they're sort of, a lot of them are the size of small penny stocks in America. So I always kind of struggle with that, especially when um, British um, British real estate is quite expensive. It, it tends to make you think they probably don't have an awful lot of uh, assets uh uh, in, in their portfolios but um i i perpetually look at the us and there's three that i own i own prologis alexandria real estate and four corners property trust and there's one that is permanently on my watch list sometimes goes into the portfolio then tends to get sold if it ever runs up a little bit and that's well tower uh, which yeah. is one that we don't tend to talk about too much uh it not to be confused with uh mpw i think it is which is uh uh a, a, a a hospital uh, REIT which has taken some strange stakes in its clients and uh, one of its big clients may be going I don't think anyone's confusing Uh, it with that based on the fact that you said it runs up sometimes yes (laughs) well tower is basically uh, more in the care sector uh, so older people um, style housing uh, in 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 America, and that is an interesting sector. We're all getting older, we're all living longer. Uh, well, we were before COVID, um, but uh, that Well Tower is a is a company that's interestingly poised at the moment, and I don't think it's particularly expensive at the moment. I've just had a quick look; it's actually fallen twenty percent since I last took a, a look at it. So, um, and it's on its uh, way down today, um, so it might be worth another look. Fair enough. Uh, anything else in the US on your stuff to have a look at, Steve? Doesn't have to be a REIT. Could be, say, a shoe company. Uh, yeah, I have got a um, a pretty interesting um, shoe company uh, that I've been looking at. How strange of you to mention. <laughs> um so this was going to be uh, sort of a stock for Paul if we could get him to turn up, um, but uh, now it's a stock for Steve, and I've actually already sent him this, and he's already told me he's buying it tomorrow because he's so impressed. So here we go. Uh, it's an eleven billion dollar um, American shoemaker. Uh, it's called Deckers, uh, and its largest brand, if you know it, is the UGG brand of boots. And uh, they were pretty popular, Steve, about two years ago. Well, (laughs) no, two years ago was COVID. So maybe about five, six or seven years ago. Um, 
Deckers has done pretty well recently, though. Um, if you look back about 10 years ago, uh, their revenue per share was about $38 a share. And I had a look at last year and worked it all back, and they've actually managed to reach $115 a share. So that's just over a 3x in revenue uh, over the last 10 years. So that's pretty decent long-term performance. Um, and this isn't some of the usual crap I try and hawk, Paul. Uh, this one actually has really, really good earnings too. So EPS uh, has grown pretty rapidly. Back in 2017, it was just 18 cents a share. Today, it's $16.43 a share. Uh, shares outstanding that's usually a sector where i have to sort of mumble my way through it and pretend nobody could hear uh, but how about this 10 years ago steve there was 37 million shares outstanding and today there's actually 10 million less only 27 million and they've got authorization to buy back another 1.5 billion or so of stock which will be about another 13 percent of the float so it's going to have lots of debt in it steve that's that's how these things work it's actually got zero is it running out of cash it's not running out of cash, Steve. It's got a billion of cash, and that's a growing pile. It's got to be traded at a billion times earnings, right? Uh, no, this one's just 20 on a forward basis, so not that expensive at all. So let's have a look at the brands that they own. Uh, let's see what you think about these. Uh, these are all compared to same same quarter, but the year before. Uh, so UGG. UGG brought in 930.4 million. It's by far their biggest brand. Sales actually declined 1.6%, although in 2021, it actually grew 15.4% year over year. So potentially these are kind of tough comps for them. So Tiva, uh, another brand of theirs, brought in 30.5 million of revenue, growing 48.3%. I'd argue this is probably too small to care about right now. Uh, Sanuk. This is a brand they paid over a hundred million for, hundred and ten million uh, in twenty twelve. Its sales decreased seven point four percent to a mere five point six million. This to me seems like it was a bit of a dud. Uh, and Cookaburra, uh, hello to any cricket fans whose ears have just peaked. Um, actually decreased twelve point one percent as well to twenty six point nine million. So yeah. Looking at that portfolio, we've got two duds, a tiny but maybe interesting small brand, and a cash cow that could be in slow decline. So this doesn't look very good at all. So let me tell you about the rest of that portfolio, Steve. They have a shining star called Hoka, and they paid a pricey sum for this brand, Steve. They paid $1.1 million for it in, some, in the summer of 2012. Uh, at the time, Hoka had about $3 million in sales. Um... And in its first full year under Deckers, it managed to contribute just 0.21% of Deckers' overall revenue. revenue sorry. So tiny. Uh, today, though, that stands at 28.3% of Deckers' revenue. Uh, a revenue kega of an incredible 70% growth per year on this brand alone. And Steve, this isn't, this isn't slowing down. It's speeding up. Last Q over Q, Hoker actually grew at 90.8%. Um, so this is good quality revenue too. So Hoka gets about 30% of its revenue from DTC uh, direct-to-consumer channels. And this is growing fast. Decker's say Hoka's DTC business grew about 58.4% last year, improving the company's overall DTC sales up to about 1.21 billion, which was up to 13.8, uh, sorry, up 13.8% year over year. And almost all of this was powered by the growth of Hoka. So i like to have a listen to the earnings call and just see how important Hoka is to Deckers. And uh, you decide for yourself. They mentioned it 76 times on the last earnings call. Uh, lastly, I want to give you a star count because I think this is probably where uh, 
we'll see uh, if there's any growth left for Hokasa uh, in the coming years. So I had a quick look at their physical store count, Steve, and it currently stands at zero. They don't actually open their first store until March this year, so this month sometime, and it's going to open in New York uh, with plans to hit major malls and cities in the coming years. So how big does this get? I don't know. But I know one thing, though. There's no dividend. Oh, well, never mind. I mean, there's no dividend, no, but there's quite a decent buyback thing going on, and it looks like they're using, as far as I can tell, nearly all of their kind of cash. You said they had a billion, and they're busy buying back about similar uh, on this. So you said 13% of the uh, float. I was seeing that as about similar on the kind of market. It's 11 billion. They're buying back one. That's pretty impressive. It's not a buyback this year that's the not? key thing to remember it's an authorization sure. to do so so they're authorized to buy back that amount but i think they're very smart operators they know they've got a bit of capex coming with these new stores uh, i think they'll be very smart about their buybacks i think they only bought about i think off the top of my head it was about 35 million of shares in the last uh the last quarter they're just do you think opening stores is important in this i mean i remember when i was sort of a lot younger it was very obviously uh, when I was a child, internet shopping wasn't really a thing, but I suspect that one of the slower things to take off on internet shopping would have been footwear and running shoes, because it used to be the case that you kind of got your feet measured and went to go and try on various shoes, see how you kind of feel in them and so on, and that's not so obviously easily done with sort of e-commerce and so on. Opening stores feels like an interesting kind of move. I'm not particularly on the pulse with how positive they are i was looking at some more of their trainers you sent me some uh, a picture of some i should say earlier uh they look really good though uh, i like the look of these a lot um hmm. serious competitor here uh, i think so yes i was comparing them to um i was comparing their reviews to on holdings which is the roger federer owned brand and to all birds as well which is a company we've mm. spoke about quite a bit on here and um they seem to get just as good a review as those two and i know they're very you know well regarded shoes so very interested to see uh, how this develops uh, about stores yeah i think at some point you're gonna have to get yourself a store if you know you can get a space in a mall which has a lot of traffic uh, one of the best ways to get your um, your product in front of a lot of eyes is to is to open a store now they know this works because they've been trying pop-up shops in various locations all around the u.s so they've been trying it in busy sort of metropolitan areas they've been doing like one or two day pop-up shops or one week pop-up shops getting people to come in try the shoes out and see how they feel so they've had a really good sort of testing phase for this and they're really confident that this will come off i mean we've got a company that's going at 90 percent without this uh, quarter over quarter so what does it do you know when it um when it when it eventually comes along and these aren't small numbers by the way I, i'm neglecting to tell you the revenue numbers it was about 300 uh, or so million in the quarter so it's starting to catch up to this old brand. I mean, at 90%, which, again, law of big numbers, that's not going to continue forever. But even at a decent clip, uh, it's going to catch up to that old brand pretty quickly and, and likely overtake it. Um, so I think this is a, a pretty interesting looking stock. I think it's got growth ahead. I have bought a massive, Steve, £70 position in my portfolio Ooh. because it was all the cash I could muster. Yeah, it's uh, like it was, three times your stake in NatWest or something. Yes, it was. I had to sell NatWest and take two dividends. I think Southern Copper and ASNL's dividend to, to buy my £70 stake. But it's there to remind myself that this is a fantastic company and in April uh, I should be buying quite a bit more. 
which portfolio is it in? It's in my it's in my ISA. Yeah, it doesn't look like the kind of blitz scaling thing, but it's got to be a very small part of that ISA uh, for now. That's interesting. I mean, we're only a couple of weeks away, I guess, from having a show on what we're planning on doing in our ISAs or what we're doing kind of out of the gate. So wait and see which of our, our things we actually buy for ourselves. Um, this uh, it looks like a hell of an acquisition, though, uh, Hoka, as a, a thing. You said they bought it for one million, generating three in revenue. That's it, yeah, yeah. And the guy who so, sold it, he said he was he was certain Hoka could be a hundred million brand. That's when he sold it to Deckers. He was like, "Look, this is going to be a hundred million brand. You've got to buy it's such a good brand. I mean, it's already a probably multi-billion pound brand. So it would be uh, interesting to see uh, how big it, it, it can get. I mean, I had a look at the shoes. I I told Steve off air, and I'll tell you on air. I had a heel problem when uh, a couple of years ago, so. I was forced to buy some sketches. Now, the sketches are the comfiest shoes that ever lived, but they do look like prison shoes. Um, <laughs> whereas these are, you know, they're, they're essentially running shoes, so they've got a lot of cushion underneath so, uh, for running on hard ground. Uh, uh, but they don't look like prison shoes at all, Steve. They look a bit more fancy than that. No, they look super uh, to me. I quite like um, running shoes, and I quite like good ones. I'm less... Um... Well, I'm less interested, I guess, in Ugg boots, but I'm surprised they were still growing by about 15% or so in 2021. I thought of them as very much, well, I'd say about a decade ago, shoes uh, was their big thing. And at the time, I remember thinking, I was quite impressed. I didn't put it in these terms because I wasn't sort of thinking commercially, but I remember thinking, this is a one where you don't really want the fake version of it. There were a lot of kind of quote-unquote fake, and I don't mean fake as in... Um, you know, copyright infringing uh, fake. I mean, similar style, but with a different or similar name uh, boots as well. But uh, for everyone I spoke to, Uggs were just no comparison. No kind of nothing really compares to the real deal here. Yeah, and and that's where I think uh, the issue is with the Decker's kind of portfolio is that we talked about Match.com uh, quite a while ago, and we said Match.com always has to have the hit product, and then the next one coming along to take its place. Now at the moment, I think we're we're seeing with Decker's that uh, they they had the hit product, the UG product was very good for them, and it looks like um, that Hoka is is now. I was going to say running alongside, but I feel like that's a bit punny. But it is running up to being their new star product. Uh, so if Ugg can maintain itself, let's say, and Hoka can come along and and replace it as its growth engine, looks pretty good for Deckers. They can go out and buy something else. Perhaps Teva, which is a brand that I uh, haven't actually got around to looking at yet. I got a bit uh, caught up in the running shoes. Um, but if Tiva uh, can continue growing at 48.3% um, quarter over quarter, I mean, that will be a big part of their, their revenue too. But um, lots of interesting little bits to this business. And I think it's, I would say it's a little bit overlooked. It's probably a little bit overlooked because its share price is about $450 because its shares outstanding is so low. Um, it's one of those kind of stocks that uh, if it cared about its share price, not sure if it does, needs a split. Hmm. Interesting stuff. That's very much for if we think about it as a stock for Paul. Leave aside the dividend thought here. Um, it's very much a kind of classically stacks up well metrics thing here, right? So I was looking actually. It's maintaining some fairly steady margins at just under twenty percent, which is quite nice as an operating margin for a company like this. You would expect something with some brand power, like Hoka, if we count that as an established brand for the moment, or UGG, which we definitely do. 
to be running it around that sort of level. That's quite nice. There's good revenue growth. They're buying back shares. They're doing all the things you would expect a company moving in the right direction to do. Balance sheet solid, but no debt. PE is not crazy uh, from what I remember of it. That's kind of all going the right way. Company I would have... I'm not sure I would have tried to pitch this to Paul, to be honest. I'm not sure I'd have wasted my time. Um, but JD Weatherspoons is very much the opposite of all those things. So when you think of JD Weatherspoons before you get down to the investment stuff, uh, what do you think? You probably think fairly consistent food across pretty much all of its outlets. The beer is reasonable. Uh, the thing is, most importantly, cheap. It's going to be cheaper than the next thing up the road because they will make damn sure that they are. Okay, so when you look at it as a stock, what do you see? Well, you see debt that's up from 780 million in 2019 that went to 991 million in 2020. Uh, you see basically bugger all free cash flow. There hasn't been any for a couple of years, and there's 20 million now, so a market cap of 740 million, which gives you a price to free cash flow of around 37. Unless you think this thing's going to grow like a weed, that's going to be an issue. And pretty low margins because they have pretty low prices. So. Okay, what the hell is there to like about this thing? Oh, also the share counts up as well from the pandemic because, you know, pandemic not very nice for these kind of companies. No one goes to the pub when you're not allowed out of your house. Tim Martin, CEO, spent a lot of time complaining about that. He spends a lot of time complaining about a lot of things, um, many of which I'm not sure I agree with, but we'll come back to him in a bit, no doubt, since I think you view him as one of the main negatives about this stock. Thing is, though, I think everyone's wrong uh, about this. I was listening to... Uh, my favourite, what is rapidly becoming my favourite podcaster that's not you or me, Andrew Hollingworth, talking about Ryanair uh, quite recently. And he was talking about Ryanair's business model and the way that it's managed to effectively carve out quite an impressive space for itself in what is an unpromising sector. Uh, in that case, airlines. And I think something similar here is true of Spoons. So if you look more closely at that debt that's been ballooning, you start to see a slightly different picture. So one thing to note about that debt is most of it was taken out before the pandemic. This isn't a case of company starts taking out loans to get itself through while it hasn't got any revenue coming in and its costs are all too high. Most of this was kind of pre-pandemic stuff and 80% of it is fixed at 1.24% to 2031. 1.24% to 2031, I wouldn't take your debt at that. I wouldn't mind issuing some debt at 1.24% to 2031 if anyone would like to lend me anything for, well, basically any purpose. I'll, I'll quite happily take debt at that level now uh, there's a lot of it but we'll come back to that in in due course i guess it's gonna be a while until that becomes an issue though interestingly they said look we had two big equity raises but that does mean that our debt to equity and the our kind of net debt levels per share coming out of the pandemic were lower than they went in because they took out the debt before and then did some equity raising instead and most of that is because they've been spending uh stuff they've invested quite a bit into their pubs extending them and buying freeholds buying freeholds should help in the long term i think it will stop them being tenants it will mean they don't have to pay rent in the same way they've been looking to buy upgrades they are basically sticking their foot to the boards at a, in investing at a time when everyone else in this sector is struggling and they have pretty low margins because uh, they charge less than everybody else. The thing is, though, I've heard it said about these that they don't have the ability to raise prices because they're cheap and their thing is being cheap. I don't think that's true. I think they do. Well, I do think their thing is being cheap. I just think that's consistent with them having the ability to raise prices. So go back a couple of years to 2020 and Rishi Sunak has just cut fat on things like eating out and so on and so forth. What did all the pubs, pretty much all the pubs other than Spoons do, said 
great, we'll have it. Prices stay the same, we just pay less VAT, we make money. What did Spoons do? Said, okay, prices come down. Uh, we'll make ourselves cheaper again. And that gives them a bit of room here. There's always been a gap between Spoons and their competitors in terms of pricing. That gap is now the biggest it's ever been. So I think when they need to, they've still got room to push their prices higher here a little bit. And they started doing it on food slightly while still being way cheaper than everybody else. So anyone who is price sensitive will still be um, looking towards them rather than anywhere else. I don't think they need to just yet. And I think they are that committed to trying to keep their prices low to people that they will do it when they have to not when they see an opportunity to they've never been the kind of company to go for a short-term cash grab and risk their kind of competitive position here so free cash flow at 20 million uh they have a market cap of 740 we and i guess to add to the kind of worry there their revenues are back close to where they were pre-pandemic so we're bringing in the same money here and we're making sod all in free cash flow what the hell is going wrong? Uh, the answer is we're spending it. Uh, we spent 70 million of free cash on um, those, that bunch of extensions and acquisitions that I mentioned. So if you take that up to sort of 90 uh, million, if you think they're one-off activities here or one-off investments that will help push, uh, help expand margins, they won't boost revenues particularly, but they'll help move margins. Um, and then we start getting to closer to 90 and on 740, now we're looking at closer to sort of eight. Uh, times free cash which makes this much 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 more interesting stock is down 52 percent over the last five years they report earnings next week they're down today because pretty much everything's down today but this thing has been moving higher it's about 15 percent up on the last week and a half or so uh, and i wonder whether the market is just starting to turn around for these guys a bit um i wish i had a bit more confidence i'd probably try and buy them chances of me getting pulled to buy these close to zero i would think yeah uh i think you're probably i think you're probably right on that um although i think it'd be for completely different reasons to me uh my problem is is that i think uh i think tim martin's a back and uh, <laughs> I, I cannot buy companies in you know where i think the ceo is a back um and i struggled quite a lot um during well, during any kind of um, sort of political run-up in that he was basically just using any excuse to go on TV to whinge about conditions that aren't entirely suitable to him rather than sort of like, like the rest of the industry is, is adapting to them. Um, and one of his major whinges is that supermarkets pay zero VAT uh, on, uh, on food sales. Uh, whereas obviously you know a Weatherspoons or a restaurant they would actually pay 20% fat on on the food sales but he has this weird idea that the supermarkets use this zero vat to subsidize the selling of beer which is just like I don't I mean he looks like he's perpetually drunk he looks like the angry man in the pub uh, and this you know is you know where they're like shouting at the angry man shouting at the clouds kind of thing and this is kind of the impression that i have of of tim martin i think he uh, he's made a rod for his own back and rather than saying hey look perhaps i didn't start weatherspoons with the best business model ever he he's just angry at other people for having better business models and that is my main issue with him is that he is ready to blame absolutely everybody but it's never his fault it's a fascinating guy. I sort of disagree with him quite violently on a bunch of things that 
I want to say have nothing to do with Weatherspoons. Um, uh, and by that, I mean stuff like Brexit. But I mean, he kind of thinks it does because, you know, anything that affects the employment situation in the UK probably affects Spoons indirectly of a sort. Um, but uh, his views on kind of Brexit, I, he's an interesting sort of character. He strikes me as one of these people who wakes up and spends pretty much every waking hour working out how to kill his competitors. Uh, and I kind of like that in a CEO. I sort of, I'm I'm very torn on the kind of CEO that he is. Michael O'Leary is another example. Mike Ashley is another kind of example. Um, they're forever kind of sounding off and they kind of draw your attention. I don't think Tim Martin does the same job that Michael O'Leary does. He annoys me slightly less, but if you see Michael O'Leary in an interview, he he is forever talking about how low Ryanair's prices are. Tim Martin doesn't really do that in quite the same way. He seems to uh, kind of grandstand a bit more politically about stuff that, um, as you pointed out, are largely sort of complaints, to be honest, like inequality between tax on from supermarkets and pubs. And uh, I, I sort of think, yeah, you're, you're not wrong about that. We need to figure out how to kind of play the hand that we're we're dealt there. But... I quite like this company's competitive position uh, for what it's worth. I heard one kind of idea which I think is wrong and I will mention as the kind of uh, counterpunch or the most convincing counterpunch. I don't think any of these are great arguments against the stock, the stuff that I mentioned here. But here's something that I do think is wrong as a point in favour of it. I heard someone comparing it and Ryanair to Costco, uh, which is a... Basically, the job is to get it into your customers' heads that they have you have lower prices than everybody else, so anyone who cares about price, it's not worth going elsewhere. That's absolutely true. That's what Costco tries to do, and what Ryanair tries to do, and what Spoons tries to do. But what Costco has that neither Ryanair nor Spoons has is a membership scheme. Uh, basically, they have a way of getting their customers to give them money for nothing. Uh, neither Spoons nor Ryanair does this. They both have to work on having effectively lower costs or using their scale advantage to negotiate better prices and then push that through to customers and then maybe raise them after and hope they don't leave but the businesses aren't quite as sticky in this sort of way so i don't think comparing it to a costco or an amazon and i'm not saying they have anything like costco or amazon scale uh, leave that thought aside for the moment i don't think comparing them to those two is the right way to think here i think though that there's a decent chunk of people who are kind of price sensitive and are pub goers by nature so a slight price increase won't put them off but they will look to go to the cheapest place they will know what they like they will stay there um, and they will keep going to a spoons because they are spoons loyalists i think that the market's badly underpricing this at the moment basically hmm. i think i think you could be right i think the business model is you know, if you think about back to the beginning of Weatherspoons, is fairly straightforward from Tim Martin. He thought that he could essentially crowd out the market by being the cheapest, uh, use any money he generates to buy more pubs and be the cheapest. And then when all the other pub chains fail, he would probably start cranking up the prices. And that, that was essentially the business model. Unfortunately, what's happened is that's not yeah, essentially uh, as what has happened. But um, just to quote one last thing, which I've just remembered as you were talking mm. to Steve, of the irony of a man who cannot remember the things he said. Uh, he was one song, uh, he was on Question Time um, during the Brexit debate, and he said that anybody who says that people will not come to this country and work after Brexit are simply being domesters. And in late 2021, he was talking to uh, the, then Boris Johnson to say, uh, that the UK needs a more liberal immigration system. 
So uh, the man can talk out of, uh, you know, two sides of his face, it seems to. And he seems to get away with it, which is, you know, generally the case. If you was, you know, you was drunk the night before, you probably didn't remember what you said. Yeah. I uh, wonder which one he actually thinks at the moment. I don't know. Anyway, uh, we've gone through the hour mark, so we should probably knock things off there. That's our show. Lots of UK stuff, some UK shoes. Uh, which of those would you like to buy, if any? And where the hell is Paul? Which one would you buy if you were Paul? Find out next week when he won't be here either, but we'll tell you some answers to things about where he is. Bye for now.